my fellow Westorians. Welcome to Valar Reredis for Dunkin' Egg. Let's see what today brings us, eh, my fellow Westorians? Dancing Sean of House Beard. I hear that ice clinking. What are you drinking? Let me think a second. This is a mango orange sparkling ice with a mango protein naked drink with a watermelon Mountain Dew. Did you know there's watermelon Mountain Dew? Well, if I ever need to know anything about Mountain Dew, I'll come to you. You know, I think that Mountain Dew is probably just taking inspiration from you, Sean. They heard, <laughs> Maybe, they heard yeah. about your drinks and they're like, oh, I guess it's quite versatile. <laughs> Mountain Dew, by the way, is at, at best my third favorite soda, Coke, Dr. Pepper. But Mountain Dew is just more mixable with juices and citrusy drinks and stuff like that. That makes sense. Sort of. <laughs> <laughs> this episode sponsored by Mountain Dew. <laughs> Please send us money, Mountain Dew. <laughs> we are starting the second story in the Dunkin' Egg sphere. And it's pretty cool. You can see some of the evolution of the, of the way it's written. The world building has expanded. We'll have some, we'll start off with some initial thoughts. First of all, a few thanks to, to drop before we get going. Thanks to Nina Friel, goodqueenally with one L.tumblr.com. Her notes are prominent, as always, in our discussions. Uh, I encourage you all to join the discussions offline, in addition to encouraging you to come watch live. Thanks to those of you who are here. And feel free to ask questions live while you're here. But you can also submit them in ahead of time or chat with fellow Westorians and places like Discord and Facebook and Flick and occasionally other places like Twitter or Slack. So if you want to get involved, I like to just yell out the window. What's that? I like to just yell out the window. <laughs> what do you guys think about Dunk? <laughs> and just hopefully someone will answer. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's definitely things are better back in, you know, back in the day when we communicated with a string tied to a tin can. Um, <laughs> yeah, really, theories were really hard to pass on that way. So thank you all to, uh, if you support us or have liked us on your different podcatcher that you use, whichever one that is, it's, it's pretty hard to keep up with these days. I remember when we got started on, on History of Westeros podcast, it was all iTunes. Everything was iTunes. Nowadays, you don't, people still use iTunes, Apple for listening to podcasts. But other than that, it's really moved on to other places and well, that's just kind of a neat observation, just watching 10 years of, of podcasting go by. We'll have to do some sort of 10-year anniversary thing next year. We'll have been doing this for 10 years around then. Wow, interesting. Yeah, right? 2012 was the first History of Westeros podcast. I don't recall what month, so I'll have to look that up. We'll figure that out. I believe it was at the latter part of the year. Though. I think so, too. Like, so towards I, like October, November even. So I think we're now around nine years. This is like right around now. So we're, we probably have about a full year left to get to 10. So we'll have time to think about what we want to do for that. But nine years is pretty long, too. Most podcasts can't say they've been around for nine years. It's only a, <laughs> it's not, a, hmm. not exactly. A, <laughs> uh, podcasts can barely say they've been around nine years. That, that's <laughs> right. I remember listening to Hardcore History and a few other shows. Let's see. Um, the uh, podcast of Ice and Fire was out back then. Shout out to them. Good friends of ours. Let's do a, a little meta, and then we'll get your first thoughts, and I'll drop a few first thoughts, and we'll get going with the heavier analysis. Uh, this was published in late 2003, early 2004, i.e. not a month apart from 
one of the main novels like The Hedge Knight was. So this is three years after the publication of A Storm of Swords, two years roughly before A Feast for Crows. The Hedge Knight was published in the Legends Anthology, and The Sworn Sword was published in the Legends 2 Anthology. Yes, very, very interesting. Uh, those are, there's a lot of really good stories in there. When we do the, our wrap-up, maybe I'll take some time to mention a few of the other stories because I've read most of them and there's a lot of really famous authors in there. For example, in Legends 2, there's six of the same authors that were in Legends 1. Uh, there's 11 authors in both. Uh, George, of course, is in both. Tad Williams, although he, Tad Williams is doing uh, two of his different worlds. He does Memory, Sorrow, and Thorn in, in Legends 2 and Otherland in Legends 1. There's two Pern stories, as in Anne McCaffrey's Pern 1 in each Robert Silverberg edited Legends 1 and 2. His Magipore series is represented in both. Uh, Raymond Feist's Rift War Saga is represented in both. And so is Orson Scott Card's Alvin Maker series. A Song of Ice and Fire itself has gone through a few different mm, conceptions as far as George himself has uh, planned. For example, at the beginning of our copy of The Sworn Sword, it says, a Song of Ice and Fire began life as a tril trilogy and has since expanded to six books. Six, you say, George? Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> as J.R.R. Tolkien once said, the tale grew in the telling. And then apparently it grew some more after that. And George also wrote this little blurb. The Hedge Knight, published in the first Legends, takes place in the last days of Good King Daron's reign, about 100 years before the opening of the first of the Ice and Fire novels, with the realm at peace and the Targaryen dynasty at its height. It tells the story of the first meeting between Dunk, a hedge knight, Squire, and Egg, a boy who was rather more than he seems, and of the great tourney at Ashford Meadow. The Sworn Sword, the tale that follows, picks up their story a year or so later. So as far as vibes, as far as the story, just your overall thoughts, Sean, how does this one strike you as compared to the hedge knight? I like it. I, 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 you asked me in one of these streams, maybe the first one covering this topic, which is my favorite, and I'd just can't decide. Yeah, <laughs> I, yeah. I still feel like the same way. It's uh, some things about this one that I appreciate. I think in all of them kind of share some of these things, but this one more so you get the perspective of the average person in the realm. Yeah. And you also get more of a female perspective than you usually get. And uh, I also like sort of the, the moral conundrum here. I think that this story, however much George intended to, it's easy to relate to environmental issues. You know what I mean? I, I think that uh, it, it could get really complicated, political, philosophical to start talking about property rights, but it's part of the world and it always has been. And it's featured here in property rights uh, and, and environmentalism, both. I remember it, in my youth trying to make sense of the world, thinking about the idea. It's, like a, it's been a constant piece of my brain the idea of someone upstream polluting water that's going to flow downstream. That that's something that has to be managed in some way, whether it's the government or people's goodness or wh whatever it is. And, and it can get very complicated. And it's a, a feature of this story. I remember being very in, particularly intrigued uh, as I was reading it. Anyway, I, I, I love it for a million reasons. I, I, among other things that I like I guess apparently I like having a character that I love to hate. Does that make sense? Yeah. Like Bennis is just Bennis, <laughs> <laughs> so good at evoking the negative energy. You know, yeah. uh, I think Martin does a good job of having a, a range of different types of characters and pulling emotions out of you in a lot of different ways. And I think this one does it. It 
I could go on. We're, we're going to go on and on. Yeah. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I, I totally agree with that. That's that's really good said. I think Bennis is, yeah, he's easy to hate, but he's really interesting. He represents a lot of things about hedge knights that were less covered in the first story because he too is a hedge knight, uh, just not nearly as good as Dunk. And, <laughs> and I mean good and well, when we talk about how good a knight are you truly, that comes up in a number of ways that the theme still very much applies here. Venice is another example of that. But like you say, the, the, the property rights and the shared resources like water that, yes, even if your section of the water is clear, that doesn't mean downstream it's the same. It's a great point. It, 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 these things affect everyone. So I'd say maybe uh, <clears throat> if we were to make some overall statements from my side here, I would agree with you that uh, maybe there's more conflict in this one. There's more interesting conflict, more applicable conflict to the real world. It's a darker story, I'd say, almost certainly, uh, although it has a happier ending. Uh, perhaps it's darker all the way through with a happy ending, happier ending, whereas the Hedge Knight is more of an adventure with lots of surprises. It's smooth and slick with its reveals and things like that. And it's kind of positive most of the way through. It's upbeat, and then it has a tragic ending. So... This is kind of reversed, I suppose, in some ways. But also, it, it has much more expanded world build. There's a lot more familiar characters, things that apply to the current story as well, which I think gives it some extra oomph, some extra punch, maybe some extra relevance. I know we've quoted it in our episodes more than we've quoted The Hedge Knight. All these stories mm -hmm. about the Blackfire Rebellions are, well, they're really important when you're getting into the Blackfire Rebellions. There's some of the most important the hands-on data we get, some of the best quotes we get. Um, this one and the Mystery Night, I think both overall do more to develop the world, probably largely because Martin had developed the world more as, as he wrote these. Yeah, so. yeah, just common By the sense time there, he got yeah. to these, yeah. Exactly. The same, the same uh, uh, thing I would say about Game of Thrones. There's just some things that are maybe a little bit missing because he hadn't, hadn't quite developed them yet. Like things that probably would have been mentioned sooner if he had conceived of them. Another thing that happens here that George seems to do a lot is characters that are presented as a villainous at first, but by the end, like, oh, wait, they, maybe they're a hero. You know, like a mm -hmm. Lady Weber is like this evil witch. Like, oh, wait, she's actually just a good lord, you know? Yeah. Or, um, I think most would think she's a good lord. There might be some debate, but... But she's not you know. evil, for sure. Yeah. Right, yeah. right. She, yeah. And likewise, sometimes the characters that you start off thinking you're a hero. It's like, wait a minute. <laughs> Eustace was, he was a traitor. I mean, you know, maybe yeah. some people even support that side, but it, the, the idea is that George presents a lot of greatness and puts a character in one light and then reveals another light, you know, whether it's necessarily hero to villain is maybe too extreme, but more of that in this one than in the last one. Yeah, I'm going to take a, a, a cue from Nina here. She says, what's interesting about how, uh, one thing about the Sworn Sword is, how much it speaks to its title, right? The sworn sword and what that means. It's exploring that concept of what it means to swear your service to somebody and what that implies, what your duties are and what their duties are to you. While continuing to explore the theme of knighthood, after all, Sir Eustace was reduced from lord to knight. He's a knight. And even, even when he was a lord, he really behaved like a knight. It's why he chose Damon Blackfire over... Daron. In part, of course, there was also the promise of getting his, his castle back. But Damon's the guy he preferred anyway, because he more embodied knighthood in the way that Eustace thinks of knighthood. So we have these very interesting versions of knighthood and everybody's sort of pushing what they mean about it. And this interplay of how honor can cause conflicts 
and how in times like this, it's really hard. You can't afford to have honor when (laughs) the kind of honor that responds to insults with your life. When Bennis is trying to avoid the conflict only to, you know, be the one to start it. (laughs) Yeah, sometimes you can't afford to not have honor. You can make that argument. Yeah, that's a good point too. And it is, as a default, I think this title, Dunk, he's the sworn sword. But yeah, like Nina said, a lot of George's titles, I guess, can apply a lot of different ways. Bennis is also a sworn sword. Yeah, just as much as Dunk is, yeah. And uh, Longinch is also a sworn sword. Absolutely. Right. So, and they all have different motivations beyond having sworn their sword. Right. They have different personalities and so on. But, um, and, and what it means to swear your sword is something maybe Duncan struggles a little bit with in this tale. And it's been hinted at in the prior book. But yeah, it's, it's very rich. I mean, Martin puts a lot of thought in almost every word that go, every, every line I read, sometimes even like mundane things. There's one line when he's describing like, the trail the horses are taking up to the castle. I'm like, I wonder if that means something. You know? <laughs> uh, but certainly the title has meaning beyond just, like, oh, what should I call it? Uh, yeah, <laughs> you're right. You're totally right. It is very layered. And perhaps, yeah, perhaps more layered. so than the Hedge Knight. George is very good at layering, but I'd say that the layering increases as the books go because there's more to layer. It's, it's a part of the function of the world building being grander, more characters out there. It's hard to start layering right away when, char- when we're, as readers, still just barely understanding the first layer, <laughs> right? Yeah. You can't start with all these layers. I mean, he does it anyway. But Yeah, you realize after the fact, man, he had three layers all along. Right. Yeah. It's just that you don't have to have noticed those other layers. It's really expertly done because it's like a lot of stories, yeah. if you don't catch the layers, you're missing big things. But George does it in a way that you can miss these things and still have a great time. But if you do catch them, you're having an even better time. And if you catch the next third layer, well, then you become obsessed like the rest of us. Yeah. <laughs> then you're like, you could it. probably go a million have a million analogies, but just you could like look at, I don't know, a Lamborghini or a Corvette, whatever kind of car you think is cool and not know anything about engines or fuel injection and still, man, that's a, that's an awesome car. Yeah. But, <laughs> but you know, there are more layers to how awesome that car went, all the different pieces being put together, all the thought and the engineering and everything. It's true. Wasn't, it doesn't just look cool. It's, yeah. it's deep. It's yeah. a culmination of development and thought and, and a yeah. bunch of different developed ideas and processes. Yeah, it's, it's a good point. So a few things about the realm, um, just general setup. We don't have as much setup to do as we did for the Hedge Knight because it's been less than two years since the Hedge Knight. Probably about a year and a half. It's not entirely clear. More than a year, less than two. The Great Spring Sickness has come and gone. It's a pretty big thing to pass over, but Dunk and Egg themselves didn't even experience it directly. They were down in Dorne, a place that was able to seal itself off more effectively than a lot of other places. The Vale able to do the same. Iron Islands probably did similar. Places that our islands or have controlled mountain passes were able to sort of separate themselves from the rest of the realm. The effects are still felt. Obviously there's a lot of people that passed and you know, that means there's less people to do certain jobs. There's just less people in general. Um, And now we have a drought, which will be a huge topic throughout this. Of course, no surprise there. It's also kind of interesting thematically to start with a drought when we started with rain. And the last one, right? You you took notice of that, didn't you, Sean? Yeah. Uh, the first story starts off with it raining, and the second story starts off with a drought. I thought that was a neat I don't know, parallel. A, a, a lot of these things that I notice, I wonder how much it 
I, I wonder if some point George was like, hey, maybe the next one, you know, if that was like yeah. the seed that was planted, it would be a drought. Mm-hmm. And then it grew from there. I wonder how much grows from a starting idea or how much he ends up deciding to have it a drought when he already had some other idea first. I would love to get in his brain and know what, what idea was first, the drought or Lady Weber? Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. That's, that's good. Of course, we also have corpses right at the beginning. Now, these are gruesome corpses where another is kind of a lovingly put into the ground um, with tears and, you know, a sense of this is the only person I knew in the world where these are two faceless people. We don't even know what they did. And that's going to be one of the first things we talk about is that that not knowing is part of setting the stage. But also there's Dagon Greyjoy. There's general unrest because of all these other things. These are things we'll talk about during the story as we go. They're all interacting with each other. It's very interesting. All these global events are playing off of one another. Dagon Greyjoy's raids are boosted by the drought and by the attention that Bloodraven is paying to the other shore, the other side of the continent. He's more focused on what the threats that might come from the east, uh, mainly the guy whose name is on my shirt, Better Steel. And then the drought and the sickness, of course, are compounding all these things. You probably know this, folks, but when things are really hot, people just get more upset. It's just people are crabby. That's straightforward. I mean, I think a lot of you kind of grasp that just naturally, intuitively. Yep, when it's really hot, I'm in a bad mood or I get short-tempered. Imagine a whole realm like that and a whole realm without air conditioning or, or many ways to, to beat the heat. So real bad, lots of short tempers, lots of anger. And that's part of setting the stage here. I mean, this is a, a fight over basic things, but there's right off the bat, there's not a lot of uh, friendly compromise. It's, it's sort of aggressive from the get-go. A big theme in this story is memory. And mostly it's memories that are painful. We have more of Dunk's upbringing, including that awesome memory of seeing Bloodraven from a distance and him looking back. Recent memories of Dorne, that sad dream of burying the horse that turns out to be not entirely true. Memories of not finding Tancel, that's, you know, kind of something he doesn't want to think about because it's kind of painful. You mentioned, Sean, he's still thinking about Baylor and how that's impacting things. That's a pretty big deal. Eustace is also thinking about his dead children. Yeah. And the lost glory of his, his, his house and his home. Also, it didn't, George didn't seem to particularly go anywhere with it, but it's another thing that like makes you wonder a little bit. His, his memory was fading. He kept mixing up names and that's a good point. Uh, you got to wonder if uh, it, maybe he was going through some sort of Alzheimer's. It didn't seem to impact the plot, but it was an interesting little happening in there. Yeah, just a little, a little chipping away. It is probably just another, another thing that he's losing. I mean, this is a guy that has no, yeah, doesn't seem to yeah. have much future. It, that's part of the happy ending that he does. There does get a little light at the end of the tunnel, maybe a big light, but it looked just grim, completely grim, like his whole life was a failure. The dynasty that he'd been a part of for so long is falling apart, and he's a steward of that, a steward of its of its downfall. Just really sad when you put yourself in his place. I mean, he's not like some great man, you know, but still, you can still sympathize. It's the same thing with, I mean, he's nowhere near as bad as Cersei, and we think of Cersei, and we think of sympathizing with her for losing her children, like, no matter how you feel about her, she doesn't deserve that. Certainly, they don't deserve that, meaning her kids. Um, not because of her deeds, anyway. Joffrey certainly deserves some things, but <laughs> not, <laughs> not Cersei's deeds or Cersei's and Joffrey's or Joffrey's is kind of what I'm getting at. 
And then we have the Black Fire Rebellions themselves as a memory. There's multiple memories here, not just of the, the events of the war, but of the figures, the characters, the personas that drove the passions on either side, the leaders and their charisma. Uh, and then Rohan's lost husbands. And of course, the one that she wanted most of all wasn't, you know, one of her husbands was Adam Osgray here. So that's a big part of this as well. It's really, really thick with memories. It's great. Um, even though so many of them are so sad, tragic memories. <laughs> but, you know, it's really well done. The realm is in a much different state overall. That's the, a, a short way to put it. We, we had things look pretty good at the time of the Hedge Knight as far as the realm. It was things were on the up, right? Baylor, you got a good ruler, you got a good hand, right? Maybe there's things aren't perfect, obviously, but it's looking pretty good. Now, it's just nothing but bad. You've got all these negative things. You've got people hating the ruler. You've got so many negative uh, aspects. You've got symbols. So I'd like to say here, here's a little piece I wrote for our intro. The Sworn Sword may not have been written as close to a Feast for Crows as the Hedge Knight was to a Clash of Kings, but I'd say overwhelmingly in spirit and in themes, the Sworn Sword is a companion to a Feast for Crows, which is really fitting because that's where all the Brienne chapters are, right? I mean, no, and no one lines up more with Dunk than she does. A knight who isn't a knight trying to make their way during a time of great trouble and suffering, seeing the struggles of the common folk coming face to face with starvation and the forgotten elements of society, things like religion, and, and again, property, things like that. Those are all big parts of Brienne's story. One thing we're going to quote, or one person we're going to quote a lot throughout these episodes, is Septon Maribald. And that's a, she's a huge, important character that comes up in Brienne's chapters and one of the most memorable characters of that book, if not the entire series. So his takes on common folk are really going to apply here. Uh, the Reach, it's a place of plenty. It's an interesting spot to be in the reach where it's known for its fertility. And here we are in a place where it's anything but. It's uh, the horn of plenty is blowing hot air instead of <laughs> whatever it normally blows. <laughs> so it's easier to miss the injustice and corruption or it's muted. It, maybe it's not easier to miss, but it's, it's muted because there's enough to go around or there's more to go around. But when things get tight, the injustices and the, the way that the highborn uh, have little regard for the lowborn. These, these things really come out in times of desperation. And that's gives us things like outlaws, the Brotherhood Without Banners and Stoneheart, which again, Brienne comes up large there. And so does Arya. And of course, Arya, we've talked about Arya being connected to Egan in a lot of ways, and that's going to continue here. You have some notes here as well about some things that you noticed, Sean. Go ahead. Well, one, let me point out with all this Brienne talk and Feast of Crows, I don't know if you can see my shirt, but it's a silhouette of Brienne leading Jamie when she had him prisoner. Uh, and and a, I, a certain person on that shirt saw your shirt, didn't he? Oh, yeah. Nikolai, Nickelodeon, uh, <laughs> Walmart, Costco. <laughs> we met him at a con. And yeah, he's like, he like pointed at my shirt. He's like, hey, is that from uh, season three? Uh, yeah, it was a really cool moment. Yeah, he, he knows his stuff. He was like, yeah, he's, he is so, he was so good at interacting. Like, give that guy the highest score possible for ability to interact with fans. <laughs> yeah, Man. yeah. He was very friendly and charismatic and knowledgeable. Yeah. Never yeah. an awkward moment. Just that, just total, total smooth and, and calm. Great dude. One little thing you, you mentioned that I, I, I kind of expect we might get a little bit more into the idea of like the water rights or what should have happened with the dam and things like that. But uh, as you were talking about the idea of times being tougher, that 
can even lead to has led to different laws around water as a resource. There's different rules in the arid Western U.S. than in the uh, more water plentiful, uh, I don't know, Northeast and Southeast or whatever. Yeah, (laughs) yeah. yeah. I don't want to get too deep into that right now, but it is interesting to note that it's uh, the effects that limited resources can have on society and governments and law, et cetera. Yeah, and that gets um, that gets into the like the back and forth on whose fault is it? Like, if the government puts restrictions on people, sometimes people blame the government for these restrictions, but sometimes and sometimes the restrictions are are wielded improperly, and the people have a valid complaint. But a lot of times, also, the government's just trying to make the best of a bad situation. Sometimes there's just two evils and a government's like, well, this is the less evil. Yeah. But that doesn't make the people not mad at the government for two, especially the people on the suffering side of that. And, you know, another thing, too, is you realize the foreshadowing with Makar and Dunk's discussion at the end of the first book. Yes. When they're like, in the future, people are going to blame, you know, if Baylor hadn't been killed, this drought wouldn't have happened. You know, like it's not Blood Raven or anyone's fault. Well ostensibly, you know, <laughs> ostensibly the gods aren't punishing <laughs> everyone because of uh, Baylor's death. But the, the powers that be get blamed for natural disasters. Yeah. You know? And maybe the natural disaster isn't their fault, but I think Nina even pointed this out in her notes too. How they manage it is their fault, right? right. You know, maybe Absolutely. they should have had better preparation for what if a drought comes or once a dig can't come, a better handling of the situation than they've had. Sure. And Again, we don't necessarily know. Like, maybe they are handling it relatively well. Maybe it could be even worse. Like, we don't really know yeah. the, the like, full like scope of it. Blood Raven's ordering people to stay on their lands. Now, there, a lot of people are upset with this. Me sitting here, I have no idea if that's a bad call or not. Uh, there's some other things he, he's ordered that I would judge, that I would criticize. That one, I'm like, I don't know. What is he hoping to accomplish with that? So I can't even begin to fathom yeah. whether that's a like, bad if order they or leave- not. Yeah, like it, it on one hand it might seem kind of crappy to make people go back to land that has no water. But what if what if they just go to some other land that also has no water? They don't know. What if they go to some other land that does have water, but now not enough for all the people that showed up? Like there there's gonna be problems no matter what. I don't know what the right answer is. Not to get too but, real uh, world, but it's very much compa- comparable to being quarantined. Being like, no, you got to stay home. You can't leave your house or or you can only go out to do yeah, a couple of things yeah. like that. It's 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 the similar type of situation is the modern version of that but it's the government telling you you got to stay home for for some reason yeah. there's a calamity and uh we don't know whether necessarily if it's the actual perfect way to handle it or just the lesser of two evils i mean we have some data on that but on the in, for for westeros we don't we don't know whether it's like well are these people going out in the road and it's causing lots of unrest because they're fighting each other or are they it's like adding banditry is this yeah you could you can see why it would be the lesser of two evils but you can also see why it would be like these people are dying of thirst man let them go somewhere else you know yeah so yeah it's, it's, it's and really it might hard. also be that blood raven like in a uh uh i don't know a frustrated fit of i don't know what to do like he might have just yeah. got like complaint after complaint he's like all right look just everyone stay home till i figure out what to do but word travels slow. He might have figured something out and hasn't reached them yet. Or I can see all, I, you know, I'm not necessarily trying to justify Blood Raven, but I am trying to empathize with the difficulty of dealing with this situation. Even if you did plan for it and try to do a good job, a drought's a drought. People yeah. are going to be upset. It's going to be a leadership. It's going to be a thankless job no matter what. You're right. There's almost no yeah. way to, to do it right. There's, no one's going to thank mm-hmm. him, like almost no matter what. 
And that's something we're going to get into as well. The, the judgment of him, the criti- the, mm, shall we say prejudice against him, which is something that we get a lot of comparisons for given we have Tyrion as hand for a while and he faced a lot of the same things, tough situations mm-hmm. that he maybe didn't handle ideally, but he was also faced with prejudice and, you know, having to do the lesser of two evils sometimes. So that's a, an excellent backdrop for us to make comparisons. Let's start with the crow cage. I think George gives us sort of a cool. under the radar comparison here. Maybe we went on a tangent there, but I did want to say real quick, uh, just that I was thinking about the themes oh, sure. and we talked about layers before yeah. how he's like layering on more themes because we've already got what makes a night. And I think that is continuing here. Oh, yeah. Destiny versus decision. And I think that one gets even deeper in the third book. Don't thinks about it a lot, but I think he does too here. He thinks a lot about like how he got to this point, you know? Mm-hmm. And a lot of times I think sometimes people have this idea like, oh, well, the gods decide you don't have control anyway. But the fact is you might not have control over this drought coming, but you still may have control over the resources you accumulated before the drought got there. Or, you know, you, you, you might not be able to control a natural disaster, but, th- but that doesn't mean you don't have control over other things in your life. But yeah. anyway, also new things coming up here really strong in this one are how the interactions of the powers that be lords or whatever affect the common people. Yeah. That's maybe a central theme to this one, maybe. But another one is tradition versus change. We thought about, mm. talked about that a little bit with the memories, you know, especially Eustace, like reflecting on how many castles he used to have, all the, you know, the, yeah. the battles won in the past. And now it's just him losing his memory and his one little castle, you know, it's, uh, yeah. and there's, change beyond just how it affects him too though right because it means some other person has become a lord or some other land is thriving and it isn't necessarily one taken from the other but it will certainly seem that way to him or some people but as a comment along what you're saying with that change one of the big changes that's really relevant here is the attitude towards Dorne and having Dorne as part of the realm which a lot of folks in the reach especially these conservatives let's call him a conservative I don't mean that politically certainly no don't attach any modern (laughs) <laughs> definitions to that. But he is absolutely, in Westeros, he would be considered a conservative. He didn't like the changes. He didn't want Dorne to be an ally. He didn't want Dornish people marrying into the royal family. Like, those are, he wanted things to be the way they were. So, yeah, it, it, he's not, he's he's not adapting. That's one thing. Or his family perhaps didn't adapt. His ancestor gets this woman being a lord. That's a, <laughs> yeah. That's not very traditional. That's and, true. Yeah. And he doesn't like that. And he's got some of the, like, very, uh, aggressive misogyny that's very common for people to fall back on in this thing. Of course, he rises above it, uh, apparently, but uh, which is part of the happy ending. But it's very much very present right away with the rumors about her that he is part of feeding, right? He knows better than most that she's not really like that. <laughs> but he's yeah, just like, yeah. <laughs> she's... He's happy for that rumor to spread, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so he, he, was, he was weighing uh, or leveraging those rumors until they were exposed (laughs) as just rumors. (laughs) It's kind of neat, even though it's really dark, is George perhaps expresses how uh, well A Feast for Crows and the Sworn Sword belong together by having the first line of the story show us two bodies in one crow cage. (laughs) Let's have the quote. Whoever they were, they looked half-starved, Dunk said. Skeletons in skin, and the skin is green and rotting. Might be they stole some bread or poached a deer in some lord's wood. With the drought entering its second year, most lords had become less tolerant to poaching. They hadn't been very tolerant to begin with. Could be that they were some outlaw band. They'd heard of Harper sing the day they hanged Black Robin. Ever since, Egg had been seeing gallant outlaws behind every bush. Duncan met a few outlaws while squiring for the old man. He was in no hurry to meet any more. None of the ones he'd known had been especially gallant. 
You remember one outlaw, Sir Arlen, had helped hang, who'd been fond of stealing rings, he would cut off a man's fingers to get at them. But with women, he preferred to bite. Now, we've seen that before. Biter and things that Ramsey has done to people to make them do that. So we don't really need to get into that. But it's a, the point is, it's about one of the worst things you can say about somebody to show that this is definitely not a gallant outlaw. Like, no gallant outlaw would do that under any circumstance whatsoever, right? Biting is just a really good example to show that someone is animalistic. It makes perfect sense that if you're you're trying to portray someone in that light, yeah, they bit people. And the one person starts (laughs) to eat the other one in the crow cage because he's kind of forced to. He's like flattered against each other there. So we have to wonder. This is uh, really dark, but we have to wonder what's happening here. Um, I want to compare us to what we see when Arya encounters crow cages in A Storm of Swords. What happens is she sees them and they give them water. Now, in that case, it's a much more mm, detailed example. Uh, it's, it's telling us different things, but they're very applicable here. Because in that case, with Arya and Anga in the BWB, they're unhappy because even though these are definitely violent, broken men, one of them was absolutely a rapist, the rest were murderers. They killed innocent people trying to get Jamie so that they can get the reward offered by Lord Karstark. So they were just violently, aggressively trying to collect this contract, basically. But the men who were under Lord Beric, the Brotherhood Without Banners, well, this is how they react to that, starting with Lem. What's this now? Justice. Answered a woman at the fountain. What, did you run short of hemp and rope? And then a minute later, after Arya gives them water, Lem kind of repeats himself almost. He says, Lord Beric, don't hold with caging men to die of thirst. Why don't you hang them decent? Point being, even these people who did awful, awful crimes, you know, that's not justice to torture them. Just execute them, sure. You know, justice, do something. You know, you, obviously you have to punish them. But there's no need to make them sit in the sun and have this horrible death. That doesn't seem right. Yet, we have this line from Dunk as he's pondering this and sort of, you can sort of see him sort of talk himself out of his initial take when he starts to have th- thoughts like this. It must have been something bad for them to be left to die inside a crow cage. But then he starts to be like, well, maybe they stole some bread. And you're like, when when he says that, you're like, wait a minute. Like, they they can't possibly deserve this because of stealing bread, could they? You know, it's also funny because Dunk himself is naive here. And then just a little bit later, he calls Egg out on being naive. That's true. For the exact same (laughs) thought, Dunk just kind of, came to this conclusion 30 minutes earlier. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So it's a really powerful statement when you compare these two situations because Dunk is sitting there going, maybe they just think awful, but when you really break it down, like what could they possibly have done that was this awful that deserved this? Because I don't know that there's anything that deserved this. There's plenty of things that you could say they deserve execution or being sent to the wall. But I would advocate for a quick death for even the worst criminals. Uh, You know, I just don't think torture is necessary here. And I think maybe some of you would disagree, but I think a lot of you would agree with me there. It's not that theft isn't wrong. It's not, it's just that the punishment doesn't fit the crime. Why do we have this horrific, torturous method of justice? It just doesn't seem like justice. And Nina writes, that's a really important point here. We have no idea what their crime was. That's the point. We can ask ourselves what could possibly be this bad. And when we ask ourselves, well, Maybe not. Maybe nothing could be this bad. 
So on one hand, I I think I agree. I'm generally against torture. Um, I'm generally against <laughs> the death penalty. Uh, right I don't think those are too bold of a statements for me to see. I like I can maybe see some. You know, maybe you have to torture someone to stop the terrorists from blowing up a bridge, but maybe it's even for the sake of precedent, you shouldn't do it then. I don't know. And maybe the death penalty is worth it for you know certain egregious definitive crimes. I, it, you know, these are very debatable points. But the idea that we don't know what they did. Let's say we knew for sure that these guys burned a village, raped the women, killed the men, right? They, they, they were responsible for the death and murder and destruction of a village of 30 people. Okay, maybe then, right? You could see, like, even in modern times, maybe we still wouldn't do it, but then maybe it's more understandable. Yeah. But they almost certainly didn't do that, or we would know that would that that happened. That would be known. Two right? people uh, doing that doesn't seem yeah, very likely, uh, right? <laughs> now, I also kind of agree they probably didn't do something as simple as stealing bread. It probably was something a little bit worse than stealing bread. But we don't really know. And on one hand, maybe it isn't just you could argue that, but it also might be a, a sort of I don't want to say this part of the reason for better or the worse of the death penalty or torture, especially public uh, executions, is a deterrent. And again, I'm not sure how much I agree with that or like the idea of it. There probably wasn't much thought of rehabilitation in this type of world, this uh, you know medieval kind of world. But uh, the thing is, if you're traveling the roads and you're thinking about attacking someone else on the road, maybe you don't plan on murdering them, but you're going to steal their horse and you come up in these dead bodies like, maybe I won't steal a horse. You know, it, you <laughs> might give second thought to any crime, yeah. right? You know, maybe you weren't going to ruin a whole village, but in any crime you were going to commit, you might think twice when you see these bodies strung up there. Yeah. Know? And I'm not sure that justifies it, but I could see whoever did it having that reason. Yeah, yeah you know, totally ineffective. Yeah, but, you know, yeah. Nina brought this up in the document herself, actually, where she brings up, if they don't know why the men were condemned, why they're in that position, what what sort of deterrent is the crime? Like, mm. what what... How can that stop crime? Well, point. I think Sean just answered that right there, which is that you don't need to know why they did it to be a little more leery of committing a crime. In a realm where there are justice is inconsistent or where it's not as where it's easier to escape justice, there's no cameras. There's no, like look at Dennis. He just runs off at the end and no one has any idea where he went. And he might get away with yeah. it because they may never find him. So that's it's a way of saying justice reigns here. There is someone dealing justice here. This is not a lawless land. Maybe the people aren't dealing justice fair, fairly, but someone is <laughs> is in charge here. Yeah. <laughs> I just want to point out that you said in a realm in where a realm. in a realm where <laughs> men are lawless. <laughs> a thousand years ago. So another thing to consider is is kind of under the radar. It's a subtle moment here where Dunk notices the tongue is gone on one of the corpses. And that and he says, I wonder if the tongue is eaten fur is what they eat after the eyes. This wasn't the most pleasant thing for me to go look for other examples of rotting corpses and oh, where, the, where the birds <laughs> tend to eat first. But I really don't think the tongue goes second. So I think the implication here is that these people had their tongues pulled out, which is a strong implication mm. that they were killed for what they said, not what they did, which gives another strong implication that they weren't stealing or harming people in a direct sense, but they were challenging authority. You know, that's what speaking tends to do. That's why you get punished for speaking is because what you're saying is offensive or challenging to people who are trying to protect their, their power base. 
you know, further evidence for that is that's exactly what happened in the next book. Yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> the septum reaching septum. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And um Blood Raven is it's really interesting thinking about this guy because he's the dude teaching Brand. Now he's changed. He's long, he's aged, and he's gotten some wisdom. But thinking of he's a real hardliner, even um, even if a lot of it's necessary. But he's a believer in uh, some of the things that we've seen Joffrey express. For one of my favorite examples, quote unquote favorite, is how he is very much uh, if you allow traitors to surrender. If you allow them to bend the knee, it encourages more treason. Whereas, you know, Joffrey, that's Joffrey's attitude. He's like, you know, treason breeds more treason. But Tywin would say something like, if you don't let them surrender, they'll fight to the death. If you don't let them know that they have a way to return to peace, they won't return to peace. Yeah. Because <laughs> you're going to kill them. They have no choice. It's, 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 they're, a, they're the equivalent of a, a person who's left the wall. There's no one will give and them even shelter. If, they will do anything they have to. They're desperate. Even if you're more powerful and will win in the end, you're going to take some losses in the meantime. Yeah. And none of this is to speak of the idea of ruling through fear won't last as long as ruling through justice or whatever else, you know? Yeah. You can't be as certain of it for as long, you know? So, Dunk is, this isn't something Dunk misses entirely. He thinks to himself, maybe a lord had it torn out for something that he said. <laughs> so, they, it's not that Dunk misses it. It's that he sort of, as he's standing there, he starts to realize these things and it's communicated to the reader that way. Knowing how big Bloodraven is to the story now, like, how did this, you know, reading about him and comparing him to the being he is now. Like, what does that do for you, Sean? Because that's something I'm really interested in hearing because my buildup for this is such so different. I mean, I knew, I read The Sworn Sword way before I read Dance with Dragons. So I had no idea Blood Raven was alive when I read the story in A Song of Ice and Fire. But you came to this story already knowing he was the three-eyed crow. Well, it, it might not be quite what you think because okay. this was more about me like piecing together who he was. Does oh, that make sense? Sure, okay. Like yeah. I, kn- I kind of had this idea that Blood Raven was the three-hour crow and I knew there was a character, Brendan Rivers, but I wasn't connecting all these as being the same person. I wasn't, I, even though maybe I should have known, I may have got the piece of data at some point that Amon and he were brothers. It still wasn't like, ingrained in my thought process about the whole story and those characters. So this to me was more like, oh, this is that Blood Raven guy, huh? You know, <laughs> Wait, he was Hand? Huh, he must have been bigger than I really. It, this is like part of me realizing what a central, uh, impactful character he was. Mm. And then and then rereading it in this past few weeks, I've been like, whoa, and Dunk ran into him, huh? You know, that was, I don't know if that makes sense, but like this, this reread has gotten me to more think about what a character he is and how interesting it is that Dunk crosses path thinking about destiny versus decision. <laughs> mm-hmm, yeah. Uh, so here's another take from Nina. This crow cage, not only is it maybe a symbolic bit because, you know, crows, ravens, uh, is this his influence, blood raven, or his direct orders even that caused this? This is something that is brought up here. The right of pit and gallows. It's an ancient statement on justice and who is allowed to do justice within a within a realm for example right away in the beginning Eddard Stark is dealing out justice it's the first thing in Bran's first chapter and then he is left to rule for Robert because Robert's a crappy ruler and he needed help and he chose someone that 
well, he could trust. But, right, obviously we all know how that went. And one of the first things Edar does when he takes over uh, to rule in Robert's stead while he's off hunting or what have you is handle this awful situation with Tywin and Gregor that instigated at the end of the crossroads. And which, who, by the way, was also hung for very little provocation by Tywin just because he could. A good example of something that's not just, but he has the right to do it and no one can stop him. And this is all building up to or pointing directly at Egg himself, who will be king eventually. Neither of them have any inkling that's even possible at this point. I mean, possible, sure, but he's so far down the line of succession, even though Baylor has died and Valar has died and Mataris has died, these other people have died. He's still really far down. I think Nina counted six males still ahead of him. And these are young men who could have kids of their own, which would then push Egg farther down again, the line of succession, not to mention the girls in front of him. So there's just a, a lot of Egg's education here. So that's something we're going to focus on quite a bit. Dunk is really conscious of teaching Egg like how to be a good dude. You know, how to like what's right and wrong and teaching him about peasants. There's a couple of really meaningful quotes we'll get to eventually. Yeah, we're going to take note of that. I want you all, as you're reading through this, if you've only read part of it, if you're rereading, really look for that. Really look for the, the education of a king here. That's what we can call it. And he's going to be, by the way, Makar is going to become king in 10 years, but Daron and Arian will both still be alive then. So Egg will still be well behind them. We had the song that you mentioned in that quote, Sean, uh, The Day They Hanged Black Robin. This is no casual reference. The Day They Hanged Black Robin is mentioned several times in the series. It actually first appears in the Astormosaurus epilogue, which you might not know if you look it up in the wiki, because the wiki is missing this mention of it. They, hmm. they taunt Merritt and then hang him. And then Thomas Evans is playing this tune, sort of ironically, because... Merritt's not an outlaw. They're the outlaws. <laughs> that was a uh, Merritt Frey. Yeah. Am I remembering the right character? Yes. Okay. That's, this is the same chapter where Stoneheart is revealed. Let's talk about the, the right of Pitt and Gallows. <laughs> She's taking it <laughs> yeah. in the, the right of Pitt and Gallows in the forest or on the old, on the old fortress of ruined fortress of Old Stone. So it's pretty neat in that sense. She's a lady, but she's undead, but she's doing justice. Commoners doing justice on, on the Lord, almost. Then the song is mentioned again in Elaine 1 by the sad, mutilated Marillion. And before he takes his own life, he's known to sing a few songs. And then, very soon after that, Samwell 2 in A Feast for Crows, Darian, sings it as well. And, well, Darian's going to come up again in this episode of all of um, randomly. So, we'll see about that. So Egg was a little fascinated by the idea of a noble outlaw. And it's a good example of something where you, you hear this something that's an example of something that does happen, but it's pretty damn rare. I mean, Beric Dondarrion is almost certainly our best example of this. Someone who's treated like an outlaw, but is actually a good guy. And he was hanged. So, <laughs> And he started off on the right side of the law. Clearly a good guy, found himself on the wrong side. There's all these just circumstances out of his control. So in a vacuum, you know, like you'd say, stealing is wrong. But there's a powerful case to be made that watching people starve to death when you could take from someone who can afford to lose it uh, to save the lives of the starving people, you could argue that is way less wrong or almost right uh, or completely right. You know, really hard to make these judgments, right? I think it's right. Yeah, I mean... And some people will argue yeah. with me very hard, but I think you, you value the starving people. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that's fine. I mean, you can say, you can even call it wrong to steal, but say it's 
wrong, it would be more wrong to not steal. I mean, that's semantics. So uh, yeah, I agree with you. Yeah. I agree with you, Shea. It is very complicated philosophical question that I've thought a lot about. And this could be debatable and we could go down a whole rabbit hole. But one thing to consider is if you're sure that the person you're stealing from won't starve, then it's more okay. But what if you're just, what if you're just bigger and stronger and steal from the smaller person who's also starving? Don't think that's okay, right? right? And you maybe can argue that there is a sort of sliding scale of morality that when, she, when you're near death, when you're near starvation, when you don't even have basic sustenance, that some laws of morality maybe don't apply to you, that getting food, or maybe it's not stealing to stop yourself from starving to death might not be defined as stealing even. And it, you might argue that, that the scale on the other end, as you get wealthier and wealthier, you become obliged to provide food yeah. for people mm-hmm. who are starving. Again, very debatable philosophical points, but it's... It, it, Story checks out in my brain. So right on. Now this plays into two strong themes. One that we've dealt with a bit already that will will continue to pervade all the way through these stories, which is the difference, the that very thin, sometimes different, uh, sometimes thin difference between a hedge knight and a sellsword, and or a robber slash brigand. It's a it's a fine line, as we've seen. And don't forget, at the beginning of the mystery night, Dunk's going to be mistaken for a brigand, and he's like, "You have no cause to call me brigand." He gets upset because. I mean, fair point. Why would you just assume that? Just because he's standing there? I mean, because well, <laughs> he's a little dirty. Because of his rope belt. Yeah, because of his rope belt. <laughs> so, I mean, that's not fair. Think about the examples in war. W- what do we call finding food during war a lot of times? It get, they, they put this term on it that makes it sound friendly, but really it's, it's not. It, it's, the term is foraging, right? You see this a lot in medieval stories and tales. And George handles it pretty well by showing the foraging is generally going to defenseless villagers and taking their stuff. That's pretty much what foraging is. And sometimes it's real bad because they're really brutal about it. If they, they push back against you a little bit, you feel like you have, you have the king's authority to take from them. And this is ultra common throughout real history. It happens here. And it happens in this story. Who is it that, that uh, they argue over Dake, the one he can't remember his name, it's like Lem or Dake. He says he's the, he's the best forager I've ever had. He, we have always had full bellies when we were out in the war. So he's always bringing them food. And what does he do? And in peacetime, he's the one accused of going on to cold moat lands and stealing food. <laughs> mm-hmm. so, yeah. It's like that's where the stuff comes. It's from stealing or forcibly taken from people who can't, you know, that's foraging. <laughs> So that- and another time, another factor in this, and again, it goes back to sort of the complications of how to define theft or stealing or the need for food. Is it even if you don't like go to their shed and steal their grain, right? If you just go into their woods and pick the apples off the trees and kill the two deer, yeah, that's the deer and apples that that family was going to eat. And also, sometimes you don't even realize the effect that that might have been like. The, the the only mother deer, like now you might've just ended the deer population in that little section of woods by over foraging it. If the, yeah. the other families that live there already are doing it. And it, you might not even feel like you're stealing. Yeah. You you know, you might not even realize some other family was going to eat those apples. Like, like Stannis is uh, uh, a small army fishing out that ice lake. Just tiny example like that, you know? Yeah. yeah. Lots of small examples like that all over Westeros during these wars. Now this... Dake character might have known good and well <laughs> what he was doing. Yes. But. Yeah, and, and, and it's not to say that they're all bad. Not all foraging is stealing. 
or yeah. taking at the point of a sword, but a lot of it is. It seems relatively safe to assume those guys in the crow's cages were punished for treason, but it is possible that they were just hunting deer out of some wood. Yep. It doesn't seem that bad, but how many kids starved to death because they hunted those deer and sold them to someone else instead of letting the families that lived in that area have those deer yeah. for dinner themselves, you know? You're right. They might have indirectly been killing people. It's hard to straight up call that murder, but so ju- still not sure it's justifies that torture. But there's, So just as we have these just difficult to determine where the line of sellsword, hedge knight, bandit, all that is. We have the same thing here with outlaw. What makes an outlaw the good kind of outlaw? What makes stealing justified? When is that okay? What's the difference between foraging and taking or pillaging? We have a quote from Septon Maribald. There are many sorts of outlaws, just as there are many sorts of birds. A sandpiper and a sea eagle both have wings, but they are not the same. Singers love to sing of good men forced to go outside the law to fight some wicked lord. But most outlaws are more like this ravening hound than they are the lightning lord. They're evil men, driven by greed, soured by malice, despising the gods and caring only for themselves. Yeah, more of Maribald later, but that's a really powerful quote that fits really well. This is just so hard to understand. I mean, we have no idea and it's given us the, it's a, it's a, Fantastic question why these men are in these crow cages and all the different ins and outs of of the decision that might have gone into that. Let's talk about the man who we think might be behind it, the Blood Raven. The man, the myth, the legend, (laughs) the the bird. (laughs) (laughs) Six years ago in King's Landing, Dunk had seen him with his own two eyes as he rode a pale horse up the street of steel with 50 raven's teeth behind him. That was before King Arius had ascended to the Iron Throne and made him the hand. But even so, he cut a striking figure, garbed in smoke and scarlet with dark sister on his hip. His pallid skin and bone white hair made him look a living corpse. Across his cheek, across his cheek and chin spread a wine-stained birthmark that was supposed to resemble a red raven, though Dunk only saw an odd-shaped blotch of discolored skin. He stared so hard that Blood Raven felt it. The king's sorcerer had turned to turned to study him as he went by. He had one eye, and that one red. The other was an empty socket. Dip Bittersteel had given him upon the red grass field. And it seemed to Dunk that both eyes had looked right through his skin down to his very soul. Despite the heat, memory made him shiver. Sir? Egg called. Are you unwell? Right, so he's actually shivering in the heat there. That's <laughs> like, whoa, that just gives you a, a, a sensation of just how that memory chills him so much and just how intense it was and just how, what a striking figure Blood Raven is. I mean, this guy is really being cast as a villain here. That's, that's part of why I asked you that question about how he comes off because when I read this the first time, like I said, I didn't know who this guy was other because A Dance with Dragons hadn't come out. A Feast for Crows mentions him once or twice and that's it. So we, we really know very little. So this, he comes off like a bad guy, right? And it's, it's like, yeah. like a lot of times I- because of his perception. This is all perception. I, I definitely, early on in my brain, with my sort of hazy awareness of him, thought of him as a protagonist, yeah. you know. But slowly over time, I was like, it's kind of dark. I don't know what to think <laughs> of this guy. And I, and I still kind of feel that way. Yeah. I, and probably part of the answer is that's what George wants. Mm-hmm. And another part is that he has lived a long time, has probably gone through different phases. So it, it's... Uh, He's definitely an interesting character. Yeah. So he's like, if you sort of draw some of the parallels here, he's over-concerned with a particularly dangerous enemy and is 
and the ends justify the means type of guy. So what's that mean for Bran? He's in a similar situation. He's got this deadly enemy that a lot of people don't take as seriously as he does. Uh, he's arguably more right this time, but still the Blackfires were very dangerous, no doubt. And uh, it's, who knows what he's going to impart to Bran and whether Bran will be with it. It's a, it's a recurring theme with a lot of the young Starks. After all, Arya is being taught a lot of things that she doesn't agree with. Arya's like, I don't agree with killing this guy. I don't agree with us not killing the, the bad guy. You know, things like that. So you wonder if Bran will have some of the same sort of disagreement with Bloodraven or if Bloodraven has just changed. It's been so long. This is the year 211 right now, roughly. Uh, maybe the end of 210. Where the, where the Sworn Sword is taking place. Yeah, so he says okay. this happened six years ago, so it would have been the year 205. Uh, Bloodraven was born in 175, so he'd have been 30 years old then. And basically yeah. now he's... Dunk would have been 15-ish. So more like maybe 11. A younger. Yeah, okay, yeah, yeah. not even a teenager. Because yeah. Yeah, yeah, Dunk, five years later, is 17-ish. You know, okay, I think yeah. he's a commoner, so it's it's kind of... Loose, but yeah. Dunk maybe could pass for a little older yeah. if he was. He can pass for a lot, yeah, a lot older. I'm he, sure. Yeah. In, in, I wonder in, when he hit his growth spurt. Yeah. I wonder how many stretch marks Dunk has. <laughs> <laughs> he even talks about maybe having grown again in this one. He's, he's not sure how old he's like. Maybe I'm 20 now, but <laughs> he's still not sure. Yeah. <laughs> he wanted to be able to call himself 20 for sure. He wanted to add some legitimacy to himself. <laughs> uh, let's move on a little bit. We have a different memory to help aid us in this discussion here, which is Eamon. All, we, we jump all the way forward to A Feast for Crows and think of Eamon remembering Duncan Egg rather than Duncan Egg remembering Eamon um, at the Citadel. He sent me north aboard the Golden Dragon and insisted that his friend Sir Duncan see me safe to Eastwatch. No recruit had arrived at the wall with so much pomp since Nymerius sent the watch six kings in golden fetters. Mm. Egg emptied out the dungeons too, so I would not need to say my vows alone. My honor guard, he called him. One was no less a man than Brendan Rivers. Later, he was chosen Lord Commander. Blood Raven, said Daron. I know a song about him. Thousand Eyes in One, it's called. But I thought he lived a hundred years ago. <laughs> he did. And that's Eamon's response. All right. Yeah, Eamon's response is, <laughs> we all did. <laughs> <laughs> so, and this is compared to the mention that we just had of Dunk maybe being even taller now, because Eamon measured him six foot uh, 11 in Old Town half a year ago, and he thinks he may have grown even more since then. <laughs> we were talking about uh, when Dunk got big, and I think we've settled that he was big when he was young. Yeah. He was definitely big when he was young, so I'm picturing Dunk like at 13 years old, he's already almost six foot. And he's like, no wonder Blood Raven's looking right at me. <laughs> he's like, well, look at that big dude way over there. Yeah, it's like a big baby. <laughs> yeah. But that, you know, uh, that now he has grown another foot beyond that. And uh, he's like, whoa. And hey, also, if this guy can shoot his uh, half brother and his, his, his nephews from 300 yards away, he's got to have pretty decent eyes, right? <laughs> yeah. You know, uh, Rita wondered... Uh, Probably not the case, but but it's just neat to think about the idea that I wonder how much Dunk, given his sort of self-consciousness, he might have like read a little bit more into Blood Raven looking at me. Like he's looking at me. He's mm. he's looking into my dark soul, you know. <laughs> like I wonder how much of that is Dunk like overthinking his own self-worth or underworth or whatever. But yeah, well, that's that's a good point because that's a recurring maybe idiom isn't the right word, but device where when you pass by 
a skull, it looks like the eyes are watching you. Like that's that a lot of characters yeah. express that about missing eyes that it looks like they're watching you. So I think that's maybe it's just a recurring, it's a human thing. Like a lot of like regular folk like you and me and, and Ashea, we, we have that too, don't we? Don't we? Don't we think the skull? Like, I don't know. I don't pass by a lot of skulls, but I, I feel like Amelie and Jimi Hendrix are both looking at me right now. <laughs> <laughs> Well, let's take a couple questions. Some questions that are asked by y'all, we're going to save for when they're a little bit more with the appropriate subtopic and a few others we'll maybe save for the wrap-up. I'll start with this one from anime lover Nicole. Did Eamon give Egg the mule named Maester? Yes, almost certainly. We don't know for sure, but it's one of those things where it's so so certain without being certain that it may as well be because he thinks that one of his brothers gave it to him. And, and he just went to Old Town where his maester brother was. So, like, what, Arian gave it to him? Uh, Daron? I, I don't think so. <laughs> he hasn't seen Daron that long. Yeah, it's really kind of has to be uh, Eamon. Here's a, a cute story. I like that question. I wondered that same thing. I was like, I wonder which brother gave it to him. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, Egg and Beth of Blackwood, of course, that's who he marries eventually. They're going to have a daughter named Rael, uh, much later, uh, who will call Eamon Uncle Maester. So... We got the mule maester and the uncle maester um, <laughs> from the same source. And now Rael, just quick mention, she's the one that eventually marries the Laughing Storm's heir, Lord Ormond, who is Robert Stannis and Ranley's grandfather. So she is their grandmother. When they have their claim to the throne, that's where their Targaryen blood is most prominent from just two generations before. Question here from Karen Targaryen. Quick, uh, just a question for either today or later discussion. I noticed that the start of all three stories has death. Sir Arlen, two dead men in cages and a head on the gates. Would love to hear your views. Yeah, I mean, good question. We will come back to this, certainly when we start our, when we begin the mystery night and frame it and discuss the opening and the themes and all that. But yeah, it's, um, I think that's a big part of what it means to be a knight in this realm. Uh, you deal with death. You deal with why people are dead, the justice behind it, whether there's revenge or ill will still in play. What about you, Sean? What do you think about the, uh, with more time to think about it, we'll, we'll We'll say some different things, but that's my initial impression. Yeah, I do. will say that this story in general, this particular one, I felt started a little more morbidly. The first one did start with death, but it was a little bit more of like a serene moment, right? Where this one's kind of like a disturbing moment and the next one also. And it is, I don't know. Yeah, I haven't thought about this very much, but just quick thoughts bursting in my brain right now is that George is like, I don't know. I mean, I guess he's presenting something, but he's presenting something to reflect on. Does that make sense? Hmm. It's uh, yeah. something to, uh, rather than like looking forward to what's going to happen with someone's life, you're immediately thinking about what led to someone's death. You know? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Julie A, good question here. Question for the panel. Have we seen or is there a swearing ceremony when a hedge knight pledges service? Is it like when Brienne swore to Catelyn or something else? I don't know if there's any standard uh, Besides kneeling, I think there's a kneeling that's implied there, but I don't even know if that's official or just customary. I think it's just customary, traditional, but um, that's a good question. Yeah, we didn't, we don't see that here. So, or if we do, I missed it. What do you think, Sean? My guess is probably similar to being dubbed a knight. That there, even if there is some official way to do it, which there probably isn't. There's probably just traditions which are different from area to area. Yeah. Those are also probably going to be handled a little different 
from moment to moment, person to person, depending on how well they know the traditions, what the tradition of their area is, or how dire the moment is. Like, you're not quick, come fight with me, you know? (laughs) I mean, considering Uh, how varied so many things are in this modern day with globalization, with the internet, it is impossible for there to be one standardized way to become a knight or to swear your sword to someone. Yeah, that that can't possibly be the case because ev- no one communicates that well. Yeah, it's not like if there were posted rules for this. We might be able to express it differently. But yeah, these things apparently aren't written down. Most knights even aren't literate. So I don't even know if it would make that much difference if it was. Certainly there would be maesters maybe expressing this. But yeah, it's not codified. We don't mm-hmm. have the, the Targaryens never codified knighthood. That, but maybe some king could have done that, but it didn't. It never happened. In a more closed, controlled scenario, you might be able to get more official, like the King's Guard, right? Yeah. They might have a little bit more of a standard process of indoctrination, but just all the knights and all the continents, yeah, it'd be really tough. Yeah. You know, a uh, minor side note, but I regret bringing it up because I can't remember the name now, but there's a famous composer, someone like Bach or someone uh, who's famous because he, there was like a, an edict from the Pope who had traveled to different churches. And would hear, I mean, this is like, you know, hundreds, 600, I don't know, hundreds of years ago. And the different hymns at different churches would be a little bit different hmm. because there was no way to write music. And he uh, said, like, someone needs to figure this out. I went, I, when I go to a different church and hear the hymns, they should all be the same. But all the churches, someone needs to find a standard way to write this. And so he came up with a process of writing all the, the lines and bars uh, that you can picture that someone invented that. So the Pope would be happy about all the music being the same. It's, it's really interesting to think about how many things in the ancient world or even just pre-modern or whatever term you want to use, doesn't really matter what term you throw out just back then, you know? And sometimes it's not even that far ago. Just how many things weren't codified like that? Like English language, like a lot of languages weren't codified. You people spelling words just however the hell they want because there weren't rules, you know? As long as you communicate the idea, it doesn't really matter if you add a Y or an EY on the end of a word. You know, as, as long as it's basically the same thing, gets the point across. That's something that's kind of... It matters where you put commas, though. <laughs> I'm going to die on that hill. <laughs> uh, you are not wrong about that, my friend. <laughs> good said, good said. Rolling Knight has a, a little bit of a different take from all this darkness and this this ominous uh, crow cages and all the drought and everything he says. This one is my favorite, partly because it's absolutely hilarious. Between Egg trying to teach Dunk the ways of highborn ladies and Septon Sefton, I chuckle my way through every time. (laughs) And Harry Lloyd has such a brilliant comic voice and timing. Actually, you know, I don't want to speak for someone else, but I would argue or suggest, Rolling Knight, that that last sentence is doing more work than you may realize. <laughs> Meaning Harry Lloyd. Because <laughs> I think <laughs> most people who read this, the take is more dark. But with Harry Lloyd reading it, I could see, and I haven't experienced that. I need to. I should, I should listen to Harry Lloyd read it. I've, I've heard audiobook version of this, but it wasn't the Harry Lloyd version. And really, Aziz, I, just so you know, I think you're missing out. Like I feel like this is one Game of Thrones experience that I've had that you haven't, that I can recommend to you. <laughs> listen to the Harry Lloyd version of this book. It's so good. I have heard him do, I forget what, but he, yeah, he is really good. So I should, I should check that out. And that's, that would lighten this dark story quite a bit if, you know, given that. Yeah. So <laughs> I will also say that it is still dark yeah. <laughs> and, uh, you know, and his, you know, he, he maybe gets the funny parts he adds, adds more to them, makes them funnier than they might've been other words. But he, one thing he does is like, sometimes it's, it's almost a negative, especially like if 
if you're in a noisy situation, because he lowers his voice <laughs> to get real soft. Especially when Dunk has like thoughts about things, sometimes he lowers his voice. That's helpful. But then other times it it creates a dichotomy when he gets louder at other moments. And anyway, I could go on and on. It's it's really really good. Right on. Cool. One little note before we continue. Um, we are working on these sort of side topics here: the Hedge Knight, the Sworn Sword, the Mystery Knight. These aren't the most famous subjects to work on, but we love to work on them and we rely on your support to uh carry through so if you would like to support us in many multiple different ways go to our website historyofwesteros.com and find the way that's right for you we've got links for patreon we got links for regular donations we got lots of merchant sponsors that if you click on those links we get a little cut whether it's uh, shire post mint whether it's amazon audible We've got a variety of ways. So just one stop, rather than describe all the different ways, just go to our website and pick the one that works best for you. Also, we encourage you to, to leave reviews on whatever podcatcher you use, uh, leave comments, upvote on YouTube if you're watching that way. You'd be surprised how much that matters. It adds to the algorithm, makes it a little more likely that people who've never heard of us get the word through, well, through those algorithms. I want to take this mid-roll break to share that hot kitten goss. Oh, the hot kitten gossip. Yes, Sean. Tell us. About please. Jet. You had an oh. experience with your kitten. Yes, we th- got three kittens a little over a month ago. And uh, everyone has, Toph, you, everyone has met. Yeah, you've met all three. Yeah. If you go back okay. to the past three yeah. episodes, you can see kittens. Yep. So we, we took them to get spayed and neutered. But we just got them spayed because <laughs> Jet's a girl. <laughs> uh, it was such a funny moment. I was at the, you know, you drop them off in the morning, pick them up in the afternoon. They've got them in the little carrier and they've got this paperwork and you're t- telling them about the shots they got, what they need next and all this stuff. But, but you know, she's like, okay, here's the thing. Flips the board. By the way, Jet's a girl. In three weeks, you need this. And, and she just keeps going. And I'm just like, Oh, uh, wait a minute. <laughs> like, you got to stop. I didn't process anything you told me after Jet's a girl. <laughs> so, uh, so Reed and I went to went to start thinking about, well, can Jet work as a girl's name? We started thinking uh, we were naming it after Jet from uh, Cowboy Bebop. We started thinking maybe Ed, which is kind of an androgynous character. Are you? Are you I'm, I just have to... How did you possibly think that Ed is a more androgynous <laughs> name than than Jet. Well, I know the, you're talking the about the character, but if you call a cat know, Ed, they're yeah. going to think it's a boy cat. <laughs> we, we thought about maybe Faye, because Jet's personality is kind of like you wild. You can't charging, change a cat's name after you've named your cat. I know. Well, I'm not necessarily saying we're going to change the name, but we thought of other characters passing for boys, like Arya in you know, Game of Thrones. Then we thought of Joan of Arc, and then we're like, wait a minute. Joan Jet. Yeah, Joan Jet. That's so that's the new full name. People, people in the chat roll. got that a little bit before you said it. So yes, lots <laughs> of people will think of Joan Jet. And she does like to dress in all black, so that's fitting cuz if you yeah. y'all forget Jet is an all black kid. But now we will discuss a brown knight. <laughs> <laughs> Good transition. Yeah, nice. I much prefer Jet to Bennis, but you know, <laughs> we got to do our jobs here. <laughs> Hedge Knight could ride bare naked if he chose. He had no one to shame but himself. It was different when your sword was sworn. When you accept the Lord's meat and mead, all you do reflects on him, Sir Arlen used to say. Always do more than he expects of you, nevertheless. 
Never flinch at any task or hardship. And above all, never shame the Lord you serve. At Stand Fast, meat and mead meant chicken and ale, but so used to say the same plain fare himself. Yeah. And, you know, a a hedge knight could ride bare naked, but they should not ride bare naked. (laughs) Not at all. The blisters, the sunburns. I mean, (laughs) yeah, like the saddle sores. Yeah, no, do not ride naked. Nina writes, uh, has a great take here. She says, what George nicely does with Bennis of the Brown Shield is show just how far the metaphysical disease of the realm has crept even to the lowest rungs of nobility. Bennis is like Dunk a Hedge Knight with only the smallest standing above small folk, yet he acts with cruel authority, threatening and cutting and taunting, including this man of Lady Weber's over, over whom he has no legal right just because he can Venice is no kinder to the people who are on his side, uh, calling, including Eustace himself, calling him Sir Useless, which that is kind of funny, actually. But <laughs> recommending that he and Dunk lie to Eustace to get out of work. He's just not a, he's just all around a, a scumbag. Yeah he, yeah. he even mocks Duncan for being good. Like, ah, you know, he does good things and he's like mocking him for being good. It's something that happens a lot in the real world. People, will mock compassion, like, you're soft, like, calling that soft, like, what? Yeah, it's just it's it's, such a weird... It's frustrating, yeah. It's like, no, it's harder to do that. I can make some sense of that mentality if you go back thousands of years when we're just struggling for food and you have to be tough and maybe you have to fight for food even, but we're past that, man. I th- Yeah. <laughs> I, maybe they're not totally past that in medieval times, but it's weird to me that people today still feel that way or like characters from past times that feel that way. Yeah, yeah, good said. So he, Dennis is basically like any number of lazy employees who the boss doesn't really know how lazy they are. He just kind of throws his weight around. He knows that no one's paying attention. No one's watching him, so he gets away with a lot. He's a classic bully in a lot of ways. Bennis also reflects the the theme we brought up at the beginning, the sworn sword, the name of the story, and that's reflected in that quote. That's why it's really important to, to frame Bennis alongside all this. And his cynicism is pretty useful to the narrative because Dunk is naive and chivalrous and wants to be a good man. And, and Eustace is pretty naive, too, and tries to be chivalrous. And Egg is... Less naive about some things, more naive about other things. None of them are really cynical. Bennis is cynical, uh, also somewhat more realistic in some ways. So as much as he's awful, he's also right about a lot of things. For example, uh, you suggest he might have known about the dam already, Sean. Yeah, I think he might have. I think that he seemed to be trying a little too hard to dissuade Dunk from investigating. And it makes sense because he knows, like he was right. He's like, Eustace, as he says, is going to want to do something about it. And and he was correct. He did want to. And Venice doesn't want that trouble. You know, I think that he's, even if he, uh, I don't know how to say it. Like, maybe we give him credit for being clever, right? He's not an idiot. He might be mean. He might be dishonorable. He might be all these crappy things, but he still is intelligent. Yeah. And it's just too bad that he doesn't use his intelligence to try to figure out what to do about the dam or how to treat with the whatever he uses it to try to avoid the conflict. And again, it even makes some sense to avoid conflict, maybe in general, but he has some duty to use this, if not to these people as a knight. And that's kind of the thing I, I, that the dunks like, Hey, we're supposed to, to help these people what about the crops? And, and even Eustace doesn't even think of the people, right? right? No, he's really. like, 
that's my he's worried about the tradition and the, the slight to his honor or whatever. So Yeah, and he see and he recognizes that when there's a cut on the cheek both ways. He's upset on both sides of that. He's like, Oh, you shouldn't have done that. That's you can't attack her peasant like that. That's going too far. That's you know, that's stepping on the Lord's foot there. And then likewise, when Rohan slaps Dunk in the lip, he's he's affronted, not Dunk, but Eustace. Like he slapped my envoy, the envoy of Stand yeah. <laughs> fast of Osgra, he's affronted. It's a big deal. And Dunk is like, nah, dude, not a big deal. I hardly felt it. He's trying to talk him down because this is the cost of honor that I brought up earlier. It, it dictates they react violently to, to small provocations. And that is so dangerous in general, but it's real, real extra dangerous when you can't afford it. Like when you get into a fight that you're definitely gonna lose. That so that's what yeah. that's what we're talking <laughs> about with Bennis here is. His brand of cynical realism, and you're right to say that a lot of it might just be laziness, like he just doesn't want to deal with it, but he also understands way better than any of the rest of them, perhaps, how quick this could all turn into a fight because he's yeah. the closest to that mindset in the first place. He knows he's got that sort of draw your sword first, ask questions later attitude, and he sees that in everyone else and expects it from everyone else. It's, it's yeah. like almost all of us project a little of our own bias into the world, if not a lot more. And Bennis's version of cynical realism is accurate to a lot of how people are in a way that Dunk maybe refuses to see or hasn't yet learned to see. Or and that Eustace and aside never, from, maybe never learned to see. Aside from the cynicism, he knows Eustace better. He knows the conflict between uh, him and Weber. And uh, he knows Eustace's pride. Although all that didn't stop him from cutting the peasant. Like nope. he's still, however, uh, whatever level of cleverness he might have to piece that together, he still can't control his own temper or his own arrogance even. And, and I also thought it was interesting that when that happened, Dunk was like, whoa, he shouldn't have done that. Yeah. And Eustace was like, whoa, you shouldn't have done that. Maybe even for different reasons. But they, it's interesting to me, there was this, there is this unspoken, if not written, line to not draw when it comes to violence that that a lot of times we see crossed frivolously right yeah. like in, in in especially in movies and tv shows just someone just punches someone or shoots someone or whatever it's a little bit take they, they take it serious just like a cut to the face like holy crap you holy crap you just shit just got real yeah, you know? <laughs> yeah right and and it's uh it's interesting because maybe it's if you're trying to like understand why Dennis does that he, maybe it's just he's got no self-control uh it could be simple as that but it, if we're sticking with this cynical realist line of thinking, maybe he's like, okay, well, now that Eustace knows about the dam, it's definitely going to be a fight. Why pretend it's not? I may as well just start, you know, yeah, <laughs> yeah. like what's hold my, why hold back now? You know, he knows it's going to If I'm going to have to fight, yeah, like, maybe even a piece of him wants, like wants to get to be violent. I mean, yeah, he might you know? just want it to get over with. It's yeah. just been at a yeah. stand still. Because he was trying to tell order them to take it down. He was like, you take this down. You, know. you didn't like my joke. So what did you say? It's been at a stand it, still. Oh, <laughs> a stand still, not stand not fast. a stand fast. Yeah, <laughs> nice one. <laughs> you know, another thing, another bit of darkness here in this this moment at the dam is uh, Dunk is chastising him for cutting a guy, and Bennett says something like, "Ah, well, I I wanted to kill him, but." Then I'd have to kill all the rest of them too, so they don't go back and tell on me. Yeah. That's like you'd kill twenty people. He's like twenty-two. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but it makes you wonder a few things. Like, 
has Bennis done that before? Has he killed a bunch of innocent people to stop someone from finding out about some bad thing he did? Yes. And <laughs> maybe was he ordered to do it by some other knight or lord? Maybe that's even why he thinks it's okay. And maybe once he did do it one time, it's just that's just he just has to like reconcile that in my, his mind now. And maybe that's why he's the cynical, broken person that he is. Yeah. How good a knight is he? Truly, right? That and, that question comes up again, and he's. Uh, not a good night, but he is maybe more realistic in a lot of ways than a lot of nights. I think on top of all that, think about sort of the lucky moments and sort of bits of destiny. Menace, in a lot of ways, is like the reason that people think of, think poorly of hedge knights, right? Yeah. Like, even if he's a small percent, like Dunk maybe is part of the 10% that's very upright and honorable. And Bennis is part of the 10% that's like the worst scum. And there's a bunch in between, right? But you only have to run into one of those scums to be suspicious of all the other 90%. And what if Venice had been the first night that, that little egg had run into? Oh, wow. How different? Yeah. How different would his perspective on the world be? You know? Yeah. It would be, it's a huge difference. You're right. That's these, these small little differences George shows us um, sometimes. Like the, the, the hedge knight's foot can be the whole cost, you know, the whole realm. Little things yeah. like that. That's really neat. So we, last time we had comparisons to people like Baylor and Arian, and they're both royals from the same house. They're from different branches and they're portrayed differently. So here, again, the question of how you represent your lord, not just how you represent yourself. Uh, it's, it's, like a, it's like a step up. Um, how you represent yourself is important, but how you represent other people also matters and how they represent you matters. It's a two-way street. If we go back to that question about how uh, a hedge knight swears to a lord or a lady to be a sworn sword, and whether there's some sort of ceremony, using that same example of Catelyn and Brienne, Catelyn took a vow to Brienne too. Brienne swore a vow, swore a vow, but Catelyn swore one too. It's like I will not ask you to do sh- jobs that are dishonorable, things that shame you. I won't ask you to do that, and I'll always give you food, things like you know. Just there's a there's a it's, it's a two way yeah, street. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's really important to keep in mind, and that's part of what Osgray did when he took up for Damon Blackfire. He made sure he was getting his reward. He's like, you give me back cold moat and I'll, I'll sign with you. And that's what happened. Well, that didn't work out, <laughs> but it's very fitting here. It's a brilliant choice to use the Blackfire Rebellion as a backdrop because here's that question. It's asked how your actions reflect on you and your Lord and vice versa and how these things are so much out of your control, right? He, he brings that, that really difficult question. If we had won the war, wouldn't we be seen as the heroes and not the traitors? It's, it's about who wins sometimes and not about who's right. That, or rather, who's right is determined by who wins. The loyalists are the ones who won, not the ones who the, are the loyalists necessarily, right? <laughs> the victors write the history. Yeah, that, some, that's, that phrase can be exaggerated sometimes, but here it is dead on. <laughs> it is 100% accurate. So, yeah. We also have the, the people who continue to serve, the ones who are on the losing side. Bennis says that. He's like, uh, much later, he's like, he fought for the Blackfires. Bennis is like, yeah, of course he did. What, does he strike you as the kind of guy that would take the winning side? And he's like, dude, you work for him. <laughs> <laughs> like, what does that say about you? <laughs> he's a loser. You're a loser working for a loser. If that's your attitude, <laughs> then that's, that's how this works. <laughs> <I guess. laughs> anyway. It's a double negative. It counts. counts it <laughs> <laughs> so early on, you cited the line from the end of the Hedge Knight, which is each time a battle is lost or a crop fails, the fools will say Baylor would not have let it happen, but the Hedge Knight killed him. Well, this drought 
It is being blamed on who's in charge. They, they don't flat out say if it was Baylor, this wouldn't be happening, but they base, they sort of do by saying it's the fault of the people who are currently there. So we have this question that doesn't have an answer, but it's important. <laughs> What's going to happen to the crops? Half the wells in the reach had gone dry and all the rivers were running low. Even the Blackwater Rush and the Mighty Mander. A drought in Westeros is devastating, especially coming as it did on the heels of, of the sickness. You have every industry reduced uh, in their output due to labor shortages, and now there can be food shortages on top of that. And if it's bad in the Reach, just imagine how bad it is elsewhere. I mean, the Reach is supposed to be the most fertile region. If it's half the wells in the Reach have gone dry, how bad must it be in Dorne? Ugh, I mean, yikes. It must be terrible. In the West, it's probably pretty bad. Of course, the West is feeling big and Greyjoy. So is the Reach. Um, there, we're on this side of the Reach that is close-ish to the shore, you know, close enough to where the effects of ironborn raids are not direct, but felt, as we see. So quite a big deal to blame this on Ares and Bloodraven. It kind of shows you how strong the Kinslayer taboo, isn't it? Because that's one of the things they cite, not just that he's got one eye and he's an albino with a red eye and he, that's frightening. And not just that he has a secret police force, not just that he's all these other things, but he's a Kinslayer. And that... That's not a new thing for Westerosi to be majorly biased against. We've seen that a lot of times. So right there, you've got a very distinct feature about this man that you can point to to say, this guy is viewed with, as a problem just because of that. But then you add on all this other stuff. Skinslayer thrice over. Yes, that would make him a thrice well, Kinslayer because that was his half-brother and his two uh, nephews. So did he like walk up and stab them in the heart with a dagger? Nah, what happened was, now this is a very good, great question. Great question because- <laughs> That's why I ask it. Yeah. Because it's said that he and his men found the so-called Weeping Ridge and rained arrows down on Damon Blackfire's position. And that resulted in the deaths of Damon and his two sons. So you can see the exaggeration right there. So he has 300 archers with him. How is it possible that he's personally responsible for all three of these deaths? Yeah. It is possible. It's like he's at war and they died in a battle, but that's not really the same as him killing them direct, I presume. Yeah. But it's not going to stop people from saying that. Right. right. A, it won't, you're right. A, it won't stop people from saying it. B, it is possible that it was his arrows. It is possible that his arrows were marked some way and we know for sure it was him. That's not specified. Nina, uh, uh, by the way, is of the mind that he is personally responsible. So we do have a, a you know, a counter a take hey. here. I imagine the way that it would be obvious that it was Blood Raven was if he had Weirwood arrows. Sure. Yeah. They're, they're, you see yeah. it and you're like, oh, well, Blood Raven killed him. It's exactly the sort of thing I'm talking about. Some like even just the fletching on his arrow, not even Weirwood arrows, but that would be a really good one, Weirwood arrows. So, but then again, maybe they all use Weirwood arrows. They all have Weirwood bows. So, <laughs> but anyway, mm -hmm. um, either way, sorcery is added to this Kinslayer soup to say that. He made the arrows fly farther and more accurately. Now we have no idea if that's true. The thing is, we can't dismiss it either because the guy absolutely has sorcery. They, they, they call him a wizard. They call him all this. And he is. He's, it's almost certainly exaggerated. Just like Melisandre uses powders and tricks to make it look like she's using real magic. But she sometimes is using real magic. Euron does the same thing. Those are our two favorite examples of magical beings that uh, exaggerate how much magic they actually have. And that is being done by rumor here rather than Bloodraven 
pushing that rumor himself, although maybe he encourages that rumor. But mostly the perception comes from the people around him and the realm rather than him being the guy that says, hey, everybody, I know magic. Watch out for me. So that's a really big deal because this is when we come up to comparing him to Tyrion. We have someone that has the look, has even, even to, hey, do you remember how many men, uh, how many clansmen Tyrion brought to King's Landing? No. 300. <laughs> 300, yeah, just okay. like the number of raven's teeth, apparently. So uh, you have these men that he brings to the Red Keep that people don't trust. They're outsiders. They, you know, people, they maybe are a little arrogant. Who knows? They, they do things. They, they feel like they're protected. They work for the top guy so they can do what they want. There's a little of that attitude. Maybe they're not managed very how many, well. How many did Ned Stark bring? Is that, is that known? Like, That'd be like interesting 100, to find like out. Like 100, I think. Because okay. he gave some of them, mm-hmm. he sent some of them away and then they were overwhelmed. But um, I think it was 100. It may have only been 50, and, though. Even his hundred would have been spread out to protect more of his family members and not just his personal guards. So. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. All this is fits in very well with with what we were saying, except that one thing that Makar said was almost not true, because they didn't mention Baylor. They're like, oh, if if it wasn't Bloodraven, Baylor would be doing this. Really, it's just that Bloodraven is taking all the spotlight. He's just so overwhelming, and people hate him so much that they're just blaming it all on him rather than blaming it on the hedge knight that, that killed Baylor. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> and really, people don't really mention Makar that much except for in positive light. They say, oh, he's sulking at Summerhall. But can you blame him? Like Egg says, can you blame He's not sulking. He's... Yeah. <laughs> so, anyway. Let's talk about the dam itself for a minute. So the dam... The it, damned the dam. The damned dam. So the dam is, of course, why the, the stream is dry. It's pretty straightforward. He is able to figure it out pretty quickly. And we've mostly discussed what happens at the dam. Dennis provokes them. They don't, they don't back down. There's lots of them. And then it goes badly because Eustace and Dunk don't approve of him drawing blood. Well, so we would ask ourselves, and, and it, it sort of touched on, how would this get adjudicated? We, we asked you this, Sean, with regards to the trial by seven. And you didn't have a, a clear answer because it's too hard to suss out. Now, obviously, I'm not criticizing you there. But <laughs> what do you think could have adjudicated this situation? Is there anything you can think of that would have maybe made this all work out? Besides the solution that they did eventually take, which is a pretty good solution. But you can't necessarily order that if you're a judge. You're like, okay, I order you two to get married. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the, king, the king can do that. Like, the king could do that. Blood Raven could actually order them to get married. <laughs> I don't know. Can you think of another way or is it just a thing where it's like you can kind of see why this came to a head because there's just the legal system doesn't provide them with a way to, to deal with this. Especially at this point in the story, we don't know all the details. Like we believe and Dunk believes that this is Eustace's water, right? But then later Rohan's like, I have this letter from the king saying it's my water. So does the king have the right to give water to one person or not another? Does the, the king or any other legal precedent in the realm account for the water that flows down from, you know, it, there's a lot of trickiness to this. Like, one thing we're pretty sure of, the way to adjudicate this is not for Bennis to cut some worker falling order's <laughs> face with his sword, right? And, and that was one thing I, I thought about a lot here, too, is that Dunk, in this moment, if he wasn't sworn to Eustace, he would have fought Bennis. Like, Dunk wants to protect the innocent, the helpless, the, right? The, here are just people doing what their Lord told them. And here comes some knight and attacks them. And Dunk would have stepped in and defended them. 
but he's like forced to be what seems like the wrong side to him at the moment. And goes back to Eustace and Eustace reinforces in Dunk's mind that he's on the right side. That's my water. It's been in our land for a thousand years or whatever, you know? So Dunk's like, yeah, let me go talk to this evil witch woman, you know? But uh, <laughs> but when we get it all put together, like, oh man, like I still don't think Venice was right, but I don't know if Eustace maybe isn't being totally honest, but also Lady Weber, I mean, she seems to be protagonistic in this story, but she is still dooming these people on this land to starve Just to, to have her mode, you know? Yeah, just to have her mode. Yeah. And she's really not, and, like, when, you, when, the, when the case is brought up, that who are you worried about? That's a good, good point. Like, there's really no one, there's no invasion imminent or anything, so. <laughs> so it seems like what some, a lot of the ways to adjudicate this, first of all, require them to, communicate with each other, which Eustace isn't willing to do, which Big adds problem. another layer of difficulty. Yeah. And, and so, uh, what, you know, if, not, if I was there trying to come up with a solution, a lot of what I come up with is what ends up happening. I would, it's, well, someone go talk to her. <laughs> Don't you do it, you know? <laughs> like, uh, but it does seem like there are a lot of potential compromises. Like, hey, can you just like release enough water from the dam to, to get down to the crops? Can you fill your moat halfway instead of all the way yeah. can you just suck it up till this used to sky dies it won't be much that much longer it seems like there are a lot of potential alternatives but no one is thinking about that at all they're just thinking about how they've been wronged and maybe we should save this till we get later into it but even rohan wanting that water for her dam there's some reasonable justification to that like maybe the in the immediate moment, the water is more important for people to not starve to death, right? But the idea that she needs to, I don't want to say this, but assert her authority, right? Like, Dunk wants to just, uh, oh, it's a pissing contest between you lords. You don't realize what you're doing to the people. And she's like, I kind of have to win this pissing contest. I'm a, I'm a young woman. Like, they could, they could just come take my lands. You don't understand. Yeah. Like, I need to have some level of assertiveness, authority, power to not just be overrun. Especially Don't to, think they won't just come into my land. You especially know? by a smaller, a lesser foe, right? Like if she loses to Sir Eustace, that looks bad. That's going to have other people like, ooh, if she's yeah. that weak, then let's move on in. So then she does And maybe the it mode. shouldn't be that <laughs> yeah. way, right? But the fact is it is, or she's legitimately worried that it is. So again, it's hard to weigh her fear that someone might attack her if her moat isn't full versus these people are going to starve imminently. There's got to be somewhere in the middle, but someone has to talk about it. <laughs> yeah. And violence isn't a good initiation to the process. So, Yeah, it is really, really tricky. We're building to the, uh, a, a contrast here, one that we've been talking about off and on throughout this whole episode. The way that someone like Blood Raven rules versus the way that Egg will rule and how much of what he's seeing here is part of that eventual education. And seeing how this doesn't work or seeing, well, I'm not going to do it this way or I wouldn't do it this way. At this point, he's not thinking how he would be king because he's so far down the line of succession. But he is thinking um, that he'll have authority and people under him later and he still needs to learn how to manage that. And this, uh, this whole attitude of, of towards Bloodraven and how he's ruling harshly, but um, maybe out of somewhat out of necessity Again, I want to compare to Tyrion. Tyrion was faced with uh, an imminent attack by Stannis and had to do some really made really tough decisions in order to defend the city or else risk losing it. And as we saw, they almost did lose it. It was really close. So you go back and look at all those little preparations he made. 
take away any one of those things and they may have lost the battle. Uh, but at the same time, thinking about some of those specifics, one example that's very troubling is Tyrion just sort of casually ordering the removal of all the houses that are attached to the wall, uh, to, to the attached to the city walls, because they're too close to, they're going to allow people to climb over more easily, things like that. And so he just has them torched. And he sends Braun to do it. And it's like, you're sending Braun to do that? I mean, he's not going to be gentle or compassionate. So, <laughs> it's, so you just have this sort of thing like, well, maybe this was necessary to them to hold on to power, but it was very unethical. And it's similar to this sort of thing where he's like ordering people to stay on their lands, maybe because the alternative is worse, but it's maybe give them a little something, right? Give them some compensation for losing their houses or something like that. But Tyrion just really doesn't do that. And it's part of, it's one of the worst things he does in that book. And because uh, it affects so many people, but they're faceless, nameless people. We don't know any of these folk. We don't, we don't see a single one of them. But we know it's bad. We know it's, 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 this, it's people getting foraged, right? It's the similar sort of concept where we know what's happening off page, even if we don't know the specifics. It's, you're sending a bad dude to accomplish a task that probably shouldn't be done or should be handled with a lot more compassion. And Tyrion isn't thought of that well by the people no. either. And it, while he may have done a lot of good things and even saved them as a whole, it, he's almost like baffled when he finds out that people don't like him. Why would that be? You yeah. Know? But think how word would spread. Think how, you know, even if that was only, I don't know, like a hundred people, it might have been a thousand people might have had house all around. Think how much space that would be. Though all those people are going to have something to say and it's going to spread. And anyone else who had a little something to say is going to like join in on the, the negativity. So. Yeah, that's very true. I mean, he accurately points to his stature and how people just hate him for who he is. But he's wrong to blame everything on that. He should acknowledge what you just said, things like that. That's a legitimate reason to be upset with him. And he can't just be like, oh, well, why do they hate me? You know? Yeah. So he's he's partly right, uh, maybe even mostly right about the bias, the prejudice about him being a dwarf, but uh, which is going to apply to Bloodraven as well because he's a, he's a kinslayer, he's a bastard, which at least Tyrion doesn't have that. Well, not that anyone knows of anyway. But you know, a couple other fun things they have in common besides having 300 men in their personal guard and besides having these other characteristics that we've discussed, they both have albino hair. They both have white hair. And they both have very unsettling eyes. Well, eye in Bloodraven's case. <laughs> you know how, how Tyrion, that's a recurring thing of him just staring people down with his mismatched eyes. And, and it's recurring that that really does work. That they're like, they wilt <laughs> before his gaze. <laughs> and here we have uh, Dunk thinking about how he shivered at Bloodraven's gaze from across the way. You know, another thought, by the way, both for the effects of Tyrion burning those houses down and also Bennis cutting that man's cheek. Think about how in modern times, if considering the wealth and, and safety nets of, of, this, of modern society that we have, imagine if your house burnt down, how much of a setback in your life that would be. Oh, gosh. In modern times, if you get a cut in a cheek, you go to the hospital to get stitches, right? Yeah. Maybe you'd have to pay a few hundred dollars for it over time. Like our medical system sucks, but still you'll be okay. Back then, there's no doctor for that man. There might be an infection. Yeah. This is already the middle of a drought. He might not even, literally might be able to not be able to wash that off. Yeah. You know, think how that man's life is in danger because of what Venice did, you know? Yeah. That is true. That is true. 
A little more about Egg, just talking about his upbringing and how this is a big deal. Like, imagine, uh, imagine if Joffrey was raised outside of court. Upbringing, I don't know if it would have made enough difference, but Bloodraven grew up at court around the other great bastards who he was highly competitive with. It was a corrupt environment because their father was the worst king of all, quite arguably, if not, you know, he... I can't imagine him not being in anyone's top three for worst Westerosi kings. So very opposite environment, right, for Egg. Egg is about as removed from court as possible. He's removed from his family, and he's not, he's not competing with his brothers and sisters directly. Uh, and he's not fighting for prestige, and he's not at court. Heck, I mean, that's perhaps the biggest of all. Uh, and now here's a fantastic quote. You were a squire born of noble blood. You were still a boy. Most of them will be men grown. A man has his pride, no matter how lowborn he may be. You would seem just as lost and stupid in their villages. And if you doubt that, go hoe a row and shear a sheep and tell me the names of all the weeds and wildflowers and what's wood. The boy considered for a moment. I could teach them the arms of the great houses and how Queen Alisane convinced King Jaehaerys to abolish the first night. And they could teach me which weeds are best for making poisons and whether those green berries are safe to eat. That is so good, right? Like, he's, he gets it. Like, this is a good kid. He, he immediately understands. Like, Dunk doesn't have to uh, argue with him or cajole him. He understands it's uh, the same concept we were just discussing with Brienne and Catelyn, the two-way street. Yes, you have the authority over them, but good rulers give and receive. You don't just take. Right. And uh, I love this line, too, because it's just so well written that the and if you doubt that, go hoe a row and shear a sheep and tell me the names of all the weeds and wildflowers and Watts Wood. You got rhyming and onomatopoeia with the weeds and wildflowers and, and Watts Wood. Yeah. Alliteration. <laughs> yeah, alliteration. alliteration. Yeah. Right. Yeah. <laughs> I always mix those two up. So I love it. Yeah. Just great writing and a great statement. It shows wisdom on Dunk's part, too. Right. Yeah. He, what well, one, he anticipates that Dunk, that uh, Egg is going to need some advice about this scenario that they're getting into, right? Yeah. And two, he has good advice to give him. And it's, again, another example of Dunk isn't the lunk that he thinks of himself as. Yes. And if we were to expand our upbringing discussion here, Egg is being brought up by Dunk. Dunk was being brought up by Sir Arlen. So someone that a lot of these things that Dunk is teaching to Egg, he got from Sir Arlen. Some of them are his own observations. He didn't agree with Sir Arlen on everything, but a lot of it comes from Sir Arlen. You get the sense that Sir Arlen was a pretty good guy, other than that strange, obscure comment about maybe he wasn't as good near the end, but we discussed that at the time. Still, that aside, we talked about Egg's influence, which is a mixture. He's got a, a crappy older brother. His, his brothers in general are not a good influence other than Eamon, who's a great influence, but not present anymore. Uh, make ours kind of a hardliner, bit of a, you know, a little macho, maybe you could say, a little too, uh, a little too masculine, perhaps, a little too uh, proud, but not a bad guy. But just contrast that to Tyrion, right? Tyrion also, his upbringing, privileged, but pretty crappy uh, in a lot of ways, because he's, by the way, he's treated by his family. Cersei, directly abusive. Tywin, emotionally abusive. Jaime, protective. And that's important. And of course, that's, you know, gone south afterwards. But competitive, destructive, traumatizing, just a lot of... You see Tyrion doing a lot of the same thing, projecting the things that were he was taught out into the world. His contempt for commoners, 
pretty much comes straight from his dad, right? <laughs> you can you can draw a straight line from Tywin's just complete contempt for uh, lowborn folk and see some of that Tyrion isn't outside of that shadow. Um, this whole not caring about what happened to these people whose homes he's burned comes straight from that sort of thing, not realizing just how devastating that is to their entire life. He's like, oh, they'll just get new houses. Like, what? No, they won't. Are you kidding? Where? Where are they <laughs> going to get another house? <laughs> From who? <laughs> what With yeah. what money? I mean, yeah, just, just completely detached from reality, completely detached from these common struggles, which is why it's so on point, so well done to show that this is important to be for as part of the education of a king. And just, you can't learn these things at court. How do you see this with like what Arya is learning out in the world? Now, Arya is not learning to be a ruler, but it's kind of a similar thing where she's out in the world learning things, interacting with common folk where contrast that to Sansa, who is a good person, but she also had that detachment. Like she's not a, you know, a scumbag like, uh, like Arian or something like that. But she does, she, is, she does start off with that detachment and maybe not, and never does quite have the direct education that Arya does. Does that ever, do you ever think about that at all? It is a neat uh, comparison to make, I guess, because we'll say that Arya maybe will learn a little bit more about the life of the average person. Sansa is has learned that the life of a princess, as she thought, is not realistic. She 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 might not be learning one side, but she's unlearning another side. Okay. Does that make yes. sense? She doesn't have the same naivete about nobility that she had before. And she has a sense of compassion. She understands. She she has yes. that thought process. So she she thinks it through. Like, well, if I do this, it will impact this and that. Or at least she's starting to. Like, she's no she's no expert at it. Still being young and all, but she has that instinct. And that I think she gets also from having a good upbringing. Like Ned and Catelyn maybe weren't the best at treating the small folk either, but they don't show contempt for it. A good example would be Catelyn naive about what her taking Tyrion would cause. The the mm-hmm. it's not her fault that Tywin executed the innkeeper, but if she thought it through, she would probably see that coming. And then she might not yeah. do it, but she might have still done it. And that's that's a problem. <laughs> there are a lot of things that even though you might recognize were wrong, that your emotions at the moment, you weren't gonna not do it, you know? Yeah. And a lot of times because of your emotions at the moment, you didn't think it through. And it theoretically, after the fact, you're like, if I thought that through, I shouldn't have done it. But the fact is, you would not have thought that through. Your emotions were going to take over at <laughs> yeah. that moment. So Yeah, exactly. I mean, Catelyn's emotions were very much taken over there. She's like, that's the guy that tried to kill my son. Like, she's, yeah. you can give her a lot of leeway. leeway. Yeah, that's exactly the word I was looking for, to, to have not thought everything through. But the reality is still there. Masha Heddle, that's the woman who gets hanged. She's says, I don't want any trouble. She knows it. She's already worried about what's going to happen. She already sees it coming. Maybe she doesn't expect yeah. to be killed because if she did, she probably would have left. But she's definitely worried about being blamed for it. And indeed, Tywin, that's how Tywin operates. He, any insult, it's like Bloodraven here. Even though Tywin's the guy we said will allow nobles to surrender so that they don't keep fighting. That's, that's a courtesy to, nobil- to the nobility. That's not the kind of sock yeah. process he has for the common folk. They do as they're told and that's all. In his mind. Oof. So really, it, it, I think this is where we'll start to wrap up for the day. Really interesting conversations here about authority and what's the ethics of authority and how the people under that authority are sort of 
trapped between that. Not maybe not trapped, but put in a difficult spot where they have to match their own ethics against what the the person that they're representing and, and what their ethics represent. Um, you know, Brennus representing Sir Eustace would make Sir Eustace look bad, but yet he still employs Sir Eustace or Brennus. But Dunk, as he says later in the story, he's like, "You're the true steel. Even just you representing me." puts uh, a no, some nobility in our cause, just like that. Some questions we intentionally saved for later. So folks, if you didn't get your question answered, don't worry. We'll probably get to it next time or the time after. I suspect we'll have the same number of episodes for the Sworn Sword as, as he- the Hedge Knight for, but it might be three. We'll see. It won't be five. So either- We're on a quicker pace already. So Yeah, yeah, definitely. We'll see how it goes. We'll come back next time, starting off probably with the recruiting of peasants. Then we'll move on to some talk about Rohan Weber. We've hardly mentioned her at all, other than uh, some surface details. But we'll get deep into uh, discussion and analysis of her, her position, her history, her house's history, and a few surprises. I suspect there's a secret of her um, ancestry that you're not aware of, or her descendants that you're not aware of. We'll, We'll talk about that next time. So thanks, everyone, for coming. We appreciate your attendance, your comments. Make sure to send in any new questions you have. If we've inspired you to have some new takes with these discussions, feel free to jump on in the conversation. We'd be happy to uh, entertain any thoughts you have. And or um, oftentimes we'll give you a shout out if your question is good. I really do look forward to finishing off this story. Here we go. to the people. Yay. (laughs) Kitten power. It's Jet. I also have a thing to point out when Sean can hear me. (laughs) So well behaved, Sean, just staying with you. Someone, by the way, uh, multiple people pointed out something I can't believe I didn't point out to you. The stone, Jet. Hmm? And Jet Black. Like you were talking. The stone? Yeah, jet. That's a kind of stone. Oh, yeah. And, yeah, and the color black, yeah. jet black, just in terms of yeah, being like, yeah. what, is, what can we name them? How can we make this seem feminine? It's like, well, it's actually... Already pretty neutral. Jet black. That was like part of the idea behind the name in the first place. So there you go. Right on. But look at that cute hey. kitty. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. See a little shaved belly uh, there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I do keep wanting to say... He's so handsome or he's so cute. And it's like, yeah, yeah. she's she, she is. She, I, I can't stop calling her buddy. And I yeah. think that's okay. <laughs> yeah, I think that's okay. I, I guess we don't really call Koja our one girl cat buddy. Yeah. Not so much. I never thought about that, but you're right. We call the other three boy cats buddy. Buddy does seem kind of male to me. Yeah, we, we call her like, hey, girly or... Anyway, yeah. anyway. I, w- I was already calling Jet Sweetie. Okay. I, I, I would call Casanova and Cersei Sweetie. There was a toy marketed to kids my age when I was a kid called My Buddy, and it was a boy. And there was a, a, a companion doll called Kid Sister. So it was <laughs> framed to me as a seven-year-old as those were, that mm-hmm. was the dichotomy, Kid Sister and My Buddy. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder, I'm, I'm sure there's a few of you out there who remember those ads. They were, they had a, I can still sing the song. I'm not going to, because then it'll be stuck in your head all day. <laughs> my buddy and me. Damn you. <laughs> <laughs> ah, he did it. See, now it's, the earworm is there. You can't stop it. Now it's like, it's like the dam is burst <laughs> to, to stick <laughs> on, stay on point here. Anyway. Yeah, usually Jet Black Joe or 
Joan Jett here is the most rambunctious and wild, but she's just purring <laughs> calmly right now. Nice. <laughs> well, at, in addition to uh, analyzing the story, we're continuing to collect a lot of parallels, some of which we discuss during, but a lot of which we're saving for the end and meaning the wrap up of all three stories. So if you see some, point them out to us. We'll add them to the list. One of the running ones is thick as a castle wall. All the mentions of the term thick of a castle wall, not just in here, but in uh, the main series. Um, so that's just one example of many things that we're collecting, parallels and fun stuff like that. Thank you to Shea and Sean for their awesome takes and managing things here. We, I think, if I say so myself, we make a great team. <laughs> nah. Nah, <laughs> you, you, you may say so. You may say so. Yeah. It's not true, but I may say so. Thanks to our mods. Spectacular, not great. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks to the mods over on our Facebook group. Y'all do a great job over there. Um, we have been doing this for a while. Every week we have a post go up. So it's, uh, it's a lot of, of keeping up. Um, over there. So thank you all who are, who are doing that. And thank, as well as those of you on the other side who are commenting regularly, upvoting the posts, and just generally being supportive. We do really appreciate that. Um, we'll be keeping them coming, of course. Thanks also to Claradox, Michael Clarfeld's site. He's the man behind the maps here, or in front of the maps, however you want to put it. Also, our video intro is um, his creation. Thank you to Kevin McLeod for the Val Arboretus music. Thanks to Joey Townsend and Jesse Koval for the regular History of Westeros intro-outro music. Thanks to our Benjineer for sound quality assistance. Um, Here Be Dragons is doing Back to the Future today. Marty McFly himself, Michael uh, J. Fox. I almost said Michael. Michael I almost said Michael P. Keaton. I almost combined his, his family ties. <laughs> Alex name. P. Yeah. Alex P. Fox. Yes, yes. <laughs> so now I, I once again refer. I'm, my age keeps coming up in this episode. I talk about my buddy, and I talk about watching uh, Family Ties and all this other stuff back in the '80s. <laughs> you know, I was looking at back a list of best comedy movies, and Back to the Future topped the list. And I just want to say, I don't, I don't think I classify that as a comedy movie. Just it's, throwing that out I there. Concur. I'm it's, curious it's funny, what they say in a, the stream. It's not a straight comedy. It just has funny parts. I would agree. I with think you. if you were going to attach like one qualifier, I think I might call may, maybe adventure. Maybe yeah. exactly the word I would use. I would say right? adventure. Exactly. But but I think it, once you get like to the third, like adventure, sci-fi, then comedy. Yeah, you sure. Know, but not comedy. I think if, if comedy is a third qualifier, then you can't be a top comedy. You know? No, I agree. So anyways, I just wanted to throw that out quandaries. there. <laughs> You, this is uh, right on point with the kind of oh, um, discussion I, that you you love to have um, about movies and stuff, I, isn't it, Sean? I can't indeed. I can't believe I forgot to mention this. I'm so glad this came up. I'm gonna be on the movie yeah. club podcast TKOK. That's Tommy Pappas's um, show. That is Monday night. Uh, that you can check it in. Check it out. Tomorrow night. Yeah, tomorrow night um, for us. That'll be July 26th. Yeah, ju yes. July 26th. I'm covering the movie Fantastic Planet, which is an animated film from the 1970s. It's quite psychedelic. And it's short. It's like an hour and 12 minutes, something like that. So you could easily tune in um, and, and uh, be caught up. So please join me. Well, I'll be joining you. I will. And Rita. Yeah, that sounds really cool. Yeah, please join Sean that. saw it in theaters with me. <laughs> 
show up and uh, support Ashea and the TKOK Podcast Network. They're big supporters of us, and um, we'd love to give show them a little love. So head, head over there if you can, or catch it on replay, and catch uh, the other stuff they're doing over there as well while you're at it. Uh, I did an episode on that same podcast of The Graduate. Right on, yeah. So you can catch Sean as well. More, Even more reason to go over there and check out TKOK Podcast Network. Also, if you're looking to re-familiarize yourself with some of the topics related to the Sworn Sword, the Hedge Knight, and all that, I highly recommend our Black Fire Rebellion series. It's very long. There's a lot of episodes. We've got a lot of great guests like Stephen Atwell, like Jim McGeehan, uh, some other folks. It's really, really long. It's the beginning of our uh, feed. If you scroll all the way to the beginning of our feed, we, we've been able to rearrange things now. It's one of the many things that's changed in the realm of podcasting that wasn't around when we started. Um, we can do that because we're on Anchor. I think the Anchor is still the only site that allows you to do that, but maybe I'm wrong. So uh, easy to find. Scroll back to the beginning of our feed and give yourself a re-listen to a Blackfire Rebellion series. And man, you will be on top of the rest of this story You'll be even more connected to it than you would otherwise. But um, your choice. Um, it's kind of like saying Valar re-listenus as we <laughs> leave, but I will still sign off with the standard Valar re-reads. <laughs> <laughs>